0: CHAPTERS ONE THROUGH THREE OF SPACE VIKING BY H. BEAM PIPER READ BY MARK NELSON This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. SPACE VIKING BY H. BEAM PIPER 1. They stood together at the parapet their arms about each other's waists, her head against his cheek. Behind, the broad-leaved shrubbery gossiped softly with the wind, and from the lower main terrace came music and laughing voices. The city of Wardshaven spread in front of them, white buildings rising from the wide spaces of green treetops, under a shimmer of sun-reflecting air-cars above. Far away, the mountains were violet in the afternoon haze, and the huge red sun hung in a sky as yellow as a ripe peach. His eye caught a twinkle ten miles to the southeast, and for an instant he was puzzled. Then he frowned. The sunlight on the two-thousand-foot globe of Duke Angus' new ship, the Enterprise, back at the Gorham shipyards after her final trial cruise. Instead, he pressed the girl closer and whispered her name. Elaine, and then, caressing every syllable, Lady Elaine Trask of Traskin. "'Oh, no, Lucas!' her protest was half-joking and half-apprehensive. "'It's bad luck to be called by your married name before the wedding. I've been calling you that in my mind since the night of the Duke's Ball, when you were just home from school on Excalibur.' She looked up from the corner of her eye. That's when I started calling me that, too, she confessed. There's a terrace to the west at Traskin House," he told her. Tomorrow we'll have dinner there and watch the sunset together. I know. I thought that was to be our sunset-watching place. You've been peeking, he accused. Traskin Newhouse was to be your surprise. I always was a present peeker, New Year's and my birthdays but I only saw it from the air. I'll be very surprised at everything inside, she promised. And very delighted. And when she'd seen everything, and Trask and Newhouse wasn't a surprise any more. they'd take a long space trip. He hadn't mentioned that to her yet. To some of the other sword worlds. Excalibur, of course, and Morglay, and Flamberge, and Durandal. No, not Durandal. The war had started there again. But they'd have so much fun, and she would see clear blue skies again and stars at night. The cloud veil hid the stars from Graham and Elaine had missed them, since coming home from Excalibur. The shadow of an aircar fell briefly upon them, and they looked up and turned their heads, in time to see it sink with graceful dignity toward the landing stage of Carvel House, and he glimpsed its blazonry. Sword and atom symbol, the badge of the Ducal House of Ward. He wondered if it were Duke Angus himself, or just some of his people come ahead of him. They should get back to their guests, he supposed. Then he took her in his arms and kissed her, and she responded ardently. It must have been all of five minutes since they'd done that before. A slight cough behind them brought them apart and their heads around. It was Caesar Carval, Grey haired and portly, the breast of his blue coat gleaming with orders and decorations, and a sapphire in the pommel of his dress dagger twinkling. I thought I'd find you two here, Elaine's father smiled. You'll have tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow together. But need I remind you that today we have guests, and more coming every minute. Who came in the ward car? Elaine asked. Rovard Graufus. And Otto Harkeman. You never met him, did you, Lucas?" "'No, not by introduction. I'd like to, before he spaces out.' He had nothing against Harkeman personally, only against what he represented. "'Is the Duke coming?' "'Oh, surely. Lionel of Newhaven and the Lord of Northport are coming with him. They're at the palace now.' Carval hesitated his nephew's back in town." Elaine was distressed. She started to say, "'Oh, dear, I hope he doesn't. Has Dunnan been bothering Elaine again? Nothing to take notice of. He was here yesterday, demanding to speak with her. We got him to leave without too much unpleasantness. It'll be something for me to take notice of, if he keeps it up after tomorrow.' For his seconds, and Andre Dunnan's, that was. He hoped it wouldn't come to that. He didn't want to have to shoot a kinsman to the house of Ward, and a crazy man to boot. I'm terribly sorry for him, Elaine was saying. Father, you should have let me talk to him. I might have made him understand. Cesar Carval was shocked. Child, you couldn't have subjected yourself to that. The man is insane!" Then he saw her bare shoulders and was even more shocked. "'Elaine, your shawl!' Her hands went up and couldn't find it. She looked about in confused embarrassment. Amused, Lucas picked it up from the shrub unto which she had tossed it and draped it over her shoulders, his hands lingering briefly. Then he gestured to the older man to precede him, and they entered the arbored walk. At the other end, in an open circle, a fountain played, white marble girls and boys bathing in the jade-green basin. Another piece of loot from one of the old Federation planets. That was something he'd try to avoid in furnishing Traskin Newhouse. There'd be a lot of that coming to Graham, after Otto Harkiman took the Enterprise to space. "'I'll have to come back some time and visit them,' Elaine whispered to him they'll miss me." "'You'll find a lot of new friends at your new home,' he whispered back. "'You wait till tomorrow.' "'I'm going to put a word in the Duke's ear about that fellow,' Cesar Carval, still thinking of Dunnan, was saying. "'If he speaks to him, maybe it'll do some good.' "'I doubt it. I don't think Duke Angus has any influence over him at all.' Dunnan's mother had been the Duke's younger sister. From his father he had inherited what had originally been a prosperous barony. Now it was mortgaged to the top of the manor-house aerial mast. The Duke had once assumed Dunnan's debts and refused to do so again. Dunnan had gone to space a few times as a junior officer on trade and raid voyages into the old Federation. He was supposed to be a fair astrogator. He had expected his uncle to give him command of the enterprise, which had been ridiculous. Disappointed in that, he had recruited a mercenary company and was seeking military employment. It was suspected that he was in correspondence with his uncle's worst enemy, Duke Omfrey of Glaspeth. And he was obsessively in love with Elaine Carval, a passion which seemed to nourish itself on its own hopelessness. Maybe it would be a good idea to take that space trip right away. There ought to be a ship leaving Biglersport for one of the other Sword Worlds before long." They paused at the head of the escalators. The garden below was thronged with guests, the bright shawls of the ladies and the coats of the men making shifting color patterns among the flower beds and on the lawns and under the trees. Serving robots, flame-yellow and black in the Carval colors, floated about playing soft music and offering refreshments. There was a continuous spiral of changing costume color around the circular robo-table. Voices babbled happily like a mountain river. As they stood looking down, another air-car circled low. Green and gold, lettered Pan Planet News Service. Cesar Carval swore in irritation. Didn't there used to be something they called privacy? he asked. It's a big story, Caesar. It was. More than the marriage of two people who happened to be in love with each other. It was the marriage of the farming and ranching barony of Traskin and the Carval steel mills. More, it was public announcement that the wealth and fighting men of both baronies were now aligned behind Duke Angus of Wardshaven. So it was a general holiday. Every industry had closed down at noon today, and would be closed until morning after next, and there would be dancing in every park and feasting in every tavern. To sword-worlders, any excuse for a holiday was better than none. "'There are people, Caesar. They have a right to have a good time with us. I know everybody at Traskin is watching this by screen.' He raised his hand and waved to the newscar, and when it swung its pickup around, he waved again. Then they went down the long escalator. Lady Lavina Carval was the center of a cluster of matrons and dowagers, around which tomorrow's bridesmaids fluttered like many colored butterflies. She took possession of her daughter and dragged her into the feminine circle. He saw Rovard Groffis, small and saturnine, Duke Angus Henchman and Bert Sandrason, Lady Lavina's brother. They spoke, and then an upper servant, his tabard blazoned with the yellow flame and black hammer of Carvel Mills, approached his master with some tale of domestic crisis, and the two went away together. "'You haven't met Captain Harkeman, Lucas,' Rovard Groffis said. "'I wish you'd come over and say hello and have a drink with him. I know your attitude, but he's a good sort.' Personally, I wish we had a few like him around here." That was his main objection. There were fewer and fewer men of that sort on any of the sword worlds. 2. A dozen men clustered around the bartending robot. His cousin and family lawyer, Nicolay Trask, Lothar Fale, the banker, Alex Gorham, the shipbuilder, and his son Basil. Baron Rathmore more of the Wardshaven nobles whom he knew only distantly, and Otto Harkeman. Harkiman was a space viking. That would have set him apart even if he hadn't topped the tallest of them by a head. He wore a short black jacket, heavily gold-braided, and black trousers inside ankle boots. The dagger on his belt was no mere dress ornament. His tousled red-brown hair was long enough to furnish extra padding in a combat helmet, and his beard was cut square at the bottom. He had been fighting on Durendal, for one of the branches of the royal house contesting fratricidally for the throne. The wrong one. He had lost his ship and most of his men, and almost his own life. He had been a penniless refugee on Flamberge, owning only the clothes he stood in and his personal weapons and the loyalty of half a dozen adventurers as penniless as himself, when Duke Angus had invited him to Graham to command the Enterprise. A pleasure, Lord Trask. I've met your lovely bride-to-be, and now that I meet you, let me congratulate both. Then, as they were having a drink together, he put his foot in it by asking, You're not an investor in the tenth adventure, are you? He said he wasn't, and would have let it go at that. Young Basil Gorham had to get his foot in, too. "'Lord Trask does not approve of the Tanith adventure,' he said scornfully. "'He thinks we should stay home and produce wealth, instead of exporting robbery and murder to the old Federation for it.' The smile remained on Otto Harkiman's face. Only the friendliness was gone. He unobtrusively shifted his drink to his left hand. Well, our operations are definable as robbery and murder, he agreed. Space Vikings are professional robbers and murderers, and you object. Perhaps you find me personally objectionable. I wouldn't have shaken your hand or had a drink with you if I did. I don't care how many planets you raid or cities you sack or how many innocents, if that's what they are, you massacre in the old Federation. You couldn't possibly do anything worse than those people have been doing to one another for the past ten centuries. What I object to is the way you're raiding the sword worlds." "'You're crazy!' Basil Gorham exploded. "'Young man,' Harkeman reproved. "'The conversation was between Lord Trask and myself. And when somebody makes a statement you don't understand, don't tell him he's crazy. Ask him what he means. What do you mean, Lord Trask?' "'You should know. You've just rated Graham for eight hundred of our best men. You rated me for close to forty vaqueros, farm workers, lumbermen, machine operators, and I doubt I'll be able to replace them with as good.' He turned to the elder Gorham. "'Alex!' How many of you lost to Captain Harkeman?" Gorham tried to make it a dozen, pressed, he admitted to a score and a half. Roboticians, machine supervisors, programmers, a couple of engineers, a foreman. There was grudging agreement from the others. Bert Sandrasen's engine works had lost almost as many, of the same kind. Even Lothar Fail admitted to losing a computer man and a guard sergeant and after they were gone, the farms and ranches and factories would go on, almost, but not quite as before. Nothing on Graham, nothing on any of the sword-worlds, was done as efficiently as three centuries ago. The whole level of sword-world life was sinking, like the east coastline of this continent, so slowly as to be evident only from the records and monuments of the past. He said as much, and added And the genetic loss. The best swordworld genes are literally escaping to space, like the atmosphere of a low gravity planet, each generation begotten by fathers slightly inferior to the last. It wasn't so bad when the space Vikings raided directly from the Sword Worlds. They got home once in a while. Now they're conquering planets in the old Federation for bases and staying there. Everybody had begun to relax. This wouldn't be a quarrel. Harkaman, who had shifted his drink back to his right hand, chuckled. That's right. I fathered my share of brats in the old Federation, and I know space-vikings whose fathers were born on old Federation planets. He turned to Basil Gorham. You see, the gentleman isn't crazy at all. That's what happened to the Terran Federation, by the way the good men all left to colonize, and the stuffed shirts and yes-men and herd followers and safety-firsters stayed on Terra and tried to govern the galaxy. "'Well, maybe this is all new to you, Captain,' Rovard Groffis said sourly. "'But Lucas Trask's dirge for the decline and fall of the sword-worlds is an old song to the rest of us. I have too much to do to stay here and argue.' Lothar Fail evidently did intend to stay, and argue. "'All you're saying, Lucas, is that we're expanding. You want us to sit here and build up population pressure, like Terra in the first century? With three and a half billion people spread out on twelve planets? They had that many on Terra alone, and it took us eight centuries to reach that. That had been since the ninth-century atomic era.' at the end of the big war. Ten thousand men and women on Abigor, refusing to surrender, had taken the remnant of the System States Alliance Navy to space, seeking a world the Federation had never heard of and wouldn't find for a long time. That had been the world they had called Excalibur. From it, their grandchildren had colonized Joyeuse, and Durandal, and Flamberge. Halteklir had been colonized in the next generation from Jeyuz, and Graham from Halticleer. We're not expanding, Lothar. We're contracting. We stopped expanding three hundred and fifty years ago, when that ship came back to morgley from the old Federation, and reported what had been happening out there since the Big War. Before that, we were discovering new planets and colonizing them. Since then, we've been picking the bones of the dead Terran Federation." Something was going on by the escalators to the landing stage. People were moving excitedly in that direction, and the news cars were circling like vultures over a sick cow. Harkaman wondered, hopefully, if it mightn't be a fight. "'Some drunk being bounced,' Nicolay, Lucas' cousin, commented. Caesar's let all wardshaven in here today. But, Lucas, this Tanith adventure, we're not making any hit-and-run raid. We're taking over a whole planet. It'll be another sword world in forty or fifty years. Inside another century, we'll conquer the whole Federation, Baron Rathmore declared. He was a politician, and never let exaggeration worry him. What I don't understand, Harkiman said, is why you support Duke Angus, Lord Trask, if you think the Tanith Adventure is doing Graham so much harm. If Angus didn't do it, somebody else would. But Angus is going to make himself King of Graham, and I don't think anybody else could do that. This planet needs a single sovereignty. I don't know how much you've seen of it outside this duchy. But don't take Wardshaven as typical. Some of these duchies, like Glaspeth or Didricksburg, are literal snake pits. All the major barons are at each other's throats, and they can't even keep their own knights and petty barons in order. Why, there's a miserable little war down in South Main Continent that's been going on for over two centuries. That's probably where Dunnan's going to take that army of his, a robot manufacturing baron said. I hope it gets wiped out and done with it. You don't have to go to South Maine, just go to Glaspeth, somebody else said. Well, if we don't get a planetary monarchy to keep order, this planet will de civilize like anything in the old Federation. Oh, come, Lucas, Alex Gorham protested. That's pulling it out too far. Yes. For one thing, we don't have the Neo-Barbarians," somebody said. And if they ever came out here, we blow them to M. C. Square in nothing flat. Might be a good thing if they did, too. It would stop us squabbling among ourselves." Harkaman looked at him in surprise. Just who do you think the Neo-Barbarians are, anyhow? he asked. Some race of invading nomads, Attila's Huns in spaceships? Well, isn't that who they are? Gorham asked. Niflheim, no. There aren't a dozen and a half planets in the old Federation that still have hyperdrive, and they're all civilized. That's if civilized is what Gilgamesh is, he added. These are home made barbarians, workers and peasants who revolted to seize and divide the wealth and then found they'd smashed the means of production and killed off all the technical brains. Survivors on planets hit during the interstellar wars, from the eleventh to the thirteenth centuries, who lost the machinery of civilization. Followers of political leaders on local dictatorship planets. Companies of mercenaries thrown out of employment and living by pillage. Religious fanatics following self-anointed prophets. You think we don't have plenty of neo-barbarian material here on Graham? Trask demanded. If you do, take a look around. Glass, Bith, somebody said. That collection of overripe gallows fruit Andre Dunnans recruited, Rathmore mentioned. Alex Gorham was grumbling that his shipyard was full of them, agitators stirring up trouble, trying to organize a strike to get rid of the robots. Yes. Harkiman pounced on that last. I know of at least forty instances, on a dozen and a half planets in the last eight centuries of anti-technological movements. They had them on Terra, back as far as the second century pre-atomic, and after Venus seceded from the First Federation, before the Second Federation was organized. "'You're interested in history?' Rathmore asked. "'A hobby. All spacemen have hobbies.' There's very little work aboard ship in hyperspace. Boredom is the worst enemy. My guns and missiles officer, Van Larch, is a painter. Most of his work was lost with the Corisandi on Durandal, but he kept us from starving a few times on Flamberge by painting pictures and selling them. My hyperspatial astrogator, Guat Kirby, composes music. He tries to express the mathematics of hyperspatial theory in musical terms. I don't care much for it myself," he admitted. I study history. You know, it's odd. Practically everything that's happened on any of the inhabited planets happened on Terra before the 1st spaceship. The garden immediately around them was quiet now. Everybody was over by the landing-stage escalators. Harkeman would have said more, but at that moment he saw half a dozen of Cesar Carval's uniformed guardsmen run past. They were helmeted and in bulletproofs. One of them had an auto-rifle, and the rest carried knobbed plastic truncheons. The space-viking set down his drink. "'Let's go,' he said. "'Our host is calling up his troops. I think the guests ought to find battle stations, too.'" Three. The gaily-dressed crowd formed a semicircle facing the landing-stage escalators. Everybody was staring in embarrassed curiosity those behind, craning over the shoulders of those in front. The ladies had drawn up their shawls in frigid formality. Many had even covered their heads. There were four news-service cars hovering above. Whatever was going on was getting a planet-wide screen showing. The Carval guardsmen were trying to get through. Their sergeant was saying over and over, "'Please, ladies and gentlemen, your pardon, noble sir,' and getting nowhere." Otto Harkeman swore disgustedly and shoved the sergeant aside. "'Make way here!' he bellowed. "'Let these guards pass!' With that, he almost hurled a gaily-dressed gentleman aside on either hand. They both turned to glare angrily, then got hastily out of his way. Mediating briefly on the uses of bad manners in an emergency, Trask followed with the others. The big space viking plowed to the front where Cesar Carval and Rovard Groffis and several others were standing. Facing them, four men in black cloaks stood with their backs to the escalators. Two were common folk retainers—hired gunmen, to be precise. They were at pains to keep their hands plainly in sight, and seemed to be wishing themselves elsewhere. The man in front wore a diamond sunburst jewel on his beret, and his cloak was lined with pale blue silk His thin, pointed face was deeply lined about the mouth and penciled with a thin black mustache. His eyes showed white all around the irises, and now and then his mouth would twitch in an involuntary grimace. "'Andre Dunnan,' Trask wondered briefly how soon he would have to look at him from twenty-five meters over the sights of a pistol. The face of the slightly taller man who stood at his shoulder was paper-white, expressionless, with a black beard. His name was Neville Orme. Nobody was quite sure whence he had come, and he was Dunnan's henchman and constant companion. "'You lie!' Dunnan was shouting. "'You lie damnably! In your stinking teeth, all of you! You've intercepted every message she's tried to send me!' "'My daughter has sent you no messages, Lord Dunnan,' Cesar Carval said with forced patience. "'None but the one I just gave you, that she wants nothing whatever to do with you.' "'You think I believe that? You're holding her a prisoner. Satan only knows how you've been torturing her to force her into this abominable marriage.' There was a stir among the bystanders. That was more than well-mannered restraint could stand. Out of the murmur of incredulous voices, one woman's was quite audible. Well, really, he actually is crazy. Dunnan, like everybody else, heard it. Crazy, am I? he blazed. Because I can see through this hypocritical sham? Here's Lucas Trask. He wants an interest in Carval Mills and here's Caesar Carval, he wants access to iron deposits on tracks and land, and my loving uncle, he wants the help of both of them in stealing Omfrey of Glasspith's duchy, and here's this loan shark of a fail, trying to claw my lands away from me, and Rovard Groffis, the fetch-dog of my uncle, who won't lift a finger to save his kinsmen from ruin, and this foreigner Harkiman, who swindled me out of command of the Enterprise. You're all plotting against me!' "'Sir Neville,' Groffis said, "'you can see that Lord Dunnan's not himself. If you're a good friend to him, you'll get him out of here before Duke Angus arrives.' Orm leaned forward and spoke urgently in Dunnan's ear. Dunnan pushed him angrily away. "'Great Satan! Are you against me, too?' he demanded. Orm caught his arm. "'You fool! Do you want to ruin everything? Now!' He lowered his voice. The rest was inaudible. "'No, curse you! I won't go till I've spoken to her, face to face!' There was another stir among the spectators. The crowd was parting and Elaine was coming through, followed by her mother and Lady Sandrason and five or six other matrons. They all had their shawls over their heads right ends, over left shoulders. They all stopped except Elaine, who took a few steps forward and confronted André Dunnan. He had never seen her look more beautiful, but it was the icy beauty of a honed dagger. "'Lord Dunnan, what do you wish to say to me?' she asked. "'Say it quickly, and then go. You are not welcome here.' "'Elaine!' Dunnan cried, taking a step forward. "'Why do you cover your head? "'Why do you speak to me as a stranger? "'I am Andre, who loves you. "'Why are you letting them force you into this wicked marriage?' "'No one is forcing me. "'I am marrying Lord Trask willingly and happily because I love him. "'Now please go, and make no more trouble at my wedding.' "'That's a lie. "'They're making you say that.' you don't have to marry him, they can't make you. Come with me now, they won't dare stop you, I'll take you away from all these cruel, greedy people. You love me, you've always loved me, you've told me you loved me, again and again." Yes, in his own private dream world, a world of fantasy that had now become Andre Dunnan's reality in which an Elaine Carval, whom his imagination had created, existed only to love him. Confronted by the real Elaine, he simply rejected the reality. "'I never loved you, Lord Dunnan, and I never told you so. I never hated you either. But you are making it very hard for me not to. Now go, and never let me see you again.' With that she turned and started back through the crowd which parted in front of her. Her mother and her aunt and the other ladies followed. "'You lied to me!' Dunnan shrieked after her. "'You lied all the time. You're as bad as the rest of them, all scheming and plotting against me, betraying me. I know what it's about. You all want to cheat me of my rights, and keep my usurping uncle on the ducal throne.' And you, you false-hearted harlot, you're the worst of them all!" Sir Neville Orme caught his shoulder and spun him around, propelling him toward the escalators. Dunnan struggled, screaming inarticulately like a wounded wolf. Orme was cursing furiously. "'You, too!' he shouted. Help me here! Get hold of him!' Dunnan was still howling as they forced him onto the escalator. The backs of the two retainers' cloaks, badged with the Dunan crescent, light blue on black, hiding him. After a little, an air-car with the blue crescent blazonry lifted and sped away. "'Lucas, he's crazy,' Cesar Carval was insisting. "'Elaine hasn't spoken fifty words to him since he came back from his last voyage!' He laughed and put a hand on Carval's shoulder. "'I know that, Caesar. You don't think, do you, that I need assurance of it?" "'Crazy! I'll say he's crazy,' Rovald Groffus put in. "'Did you hear what he said about his rights? Wait till his grace hears about that.' "'Does he lay claim to the ducal throne, Sir Rovard?' Otto Harkeman asked, sharply and seriously. "'Oh, he claims that his mother was born a year and a half before Duke Angus and the true date of her birth falsified, to give Angus the succession. Why, his present grace was three years old when she was born. I was old Duke Fergus Esquire. I carried Angus on my shoulder when André Dunnan's mother was presented to the lords and barons the day after she was born." "'Of course he's crazy,' Alex Gorham agreed. "'I don't know why the Duke doesn't have him put under psychiatric treatment.' "'I'd put him under treatment,' Harkiman said, drawing a finger across under his beard. "'Crazy men who pretend to thrones are bombs that ought to be deactivated before they blow things up.' "'We couldn't do that,' Groffis said. "'After all, he's Duke Angus's nephew.' "'I could do it,' Harkiman said. "'He only has three hundred men in this company of his.' "'Why, you people ever let him recruit them, Satan only knows,' he parenthesized. "'I have eight hundred. Five hundred ground fighters. I'd like to see how they shape up in combat, before we space out. I can have them ready for action in two hours, and it'd be all over before midnight.' "'No, Captain Harkeman. His grace would never permit it,' Groffus vetoed. You have no idea of the political harm that would do among the independent lords, on whom we're counting for support. You weren't here on Graham when Duke Richard of Didrixburg had his sister Sancia's second husband poisoned. End of chapter 3